Welcome to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. In each episode, we sit down and talk with industry experts who share proven marketing strategies, best practices for content, tactical advice, and tales of SaaS and entrepreneurship, and so much more. Enjoy today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone tuning in. I'm Nick Vaca. I'm the global principal for audio video right here at Rock Content. And it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you all to Jam Session. Today, I have the privilege of introducing a comedian, an executive, an engineer, an efficiency expert. Not only that, but he is an avid video game enthusiast. I can relate. A appreciator of fine science fiction and an overall super nerd, but only by virtue of the fact that he has given a TED Talk as super nerds are wont to do. So please, everybody, join me in welcoming the author of Humor That Works, Andrew Tarvin. Andrew? The pleasure's mine. Hello, Nick. Thank you so much for for having me. And what a warm introduction. I appreciate that. And and your your voice sounds way better than mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna attribute that to the microphone. So if you feel like my voice is a little bit nasally, we'll say it's the microphone's fault and not the fact that I just was born with a nasally voice. And absolutely. If I hit a switch, I just sound like this, and it just doesn't work at all. Uh, but no, I've I've hit I've hit the radio uh, button again, like Howard Stern uses. So now everything's crisp. It's warm. It's clear. But anyway, as always, everybody, interviews hosted by us here at Rock Content feature top marketing experts, trailblazers, and brilliant minds, all with one common theme, and that is to provide advice and share trends and best practices on how to master successful marketing, storytelling, and content experiences. For this jam session, we're having a special giveaway of the e-copy edition of Andrew's bestseller, 501 Ways to Use Humor. We're going to announce the winner at the end of the jam session, but Drew... Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Certainly. Well, the book is 501 Ways to Use Humor, and it was born out of the thought of, well, hopefully by the end of this session, you're going to be like, okay, I definitely want to use humor in my work a little bit more. And maybe you have a couple of ways to get started, but you're like, what if I had more? What if I had 501 different ways that I could try using humor in the workplace? That's exactly what this resource is. Is It's a just a collection of ways to use humor spread across communication or email or meetings or just making your own self or your own work a little bit more effective, more productive. And so basically, it's a reference guide for ideas to, to use humor. Fantastic. So I was actually introduced to you, introduced, introduced, good grief, I'm getting my vowels all mixed up now. Um, I was introduced to Andrew, I was introduced to you, sir, by Pedro Lopez, who helped organize this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, your message resonated with me immediately like people who use humor are just more fun to be around they're more likely to succeed they're far easier to work with they're incredibly modest which is why i was chosen to host this jam session mm -hmm. um they don't necessarily have to be funny which is why i was still chosen to host this jam session mm -hmm. um but as we mentioned you've appeared on tedx and you've been featured in cnn the wall street journal forbes the huffington post cranes incorporated fast company I, I would go on more, but I don't want to be scolded by an efficiency expert. So, Drew, welcome to Jam Sessions. Thank you. Thank you. What a warm introduction as a way to set that up. And I, it's so warm that I'm sweating over here. Uh, you can see it visibly. I apologize to those who are like, what is wrong with it? Why is he so nervous for this interview? I, uh, I was caught in some traffic, so I actually did a little bit of a sprint in the rain, and uh, thus the current appearance. I will dry off by the end of this thing that is over. But that's how excited I was to be here to be on time was I had to do a little bit of a run. But uh, I, I appreciate the, that warm welcome that I'm, I'm sweating. 
Hey, absolutely. We appreciate it. If you see sweat pouring off of me, it's genuine because I was a fool and pointed three lights at myself. Uh, so we're, we're going to get through this with the, the jacket hopefully still on at the end of it and the shirt. Uh, but let's get into it. For anyone in the audience who may not know who you are, mm-hmm. how did you go from being an IT project manager for Procter & Gamble to becoming a, um, for lack of a better term, an Andrew Tarbin? Uh, yeah, a, a self-described humor engineer, if you yes. will. How do you go from computer science and engineering, which is that degree right there on the wall, oh. uh, to uh, to humor engineering? And uh, I wish I had a super sexy story. I wish I could tell you, you know, I was sitting in in a meeting at PNG. I was browsing the anti-work subreddit, and I just got so fed up with everything that I flipped over the table and stormed out. And that's not at all what happened. No, I... Um, so I went to the Ohio State University. Uh, had to put the thought in there, otherwise they take away the degree. But I went to the Ohio State University, got a degree in computer science and engineering, and that kind of fit my personality assessment. Because if you uh, if you know your personality assessments, I am a Type A blue square conscientious INTJ with a sign of Aquarius. Which the translation of that is that I'm an ambitious, stubborn introvert who likes long walks on the beach uh, by myself. <laughs> Uh, right. So <laughs> computer science engineer is kind of what you expect. That's what my guidance school counselor recommended it. What kind of fit the bill. And uh, that's what I was, that was the work that I was doing at PNG. But at PNG and actually prior to PNG at Ohio State, in addition to getting a degree in computer science and engineering, I also started doing improv and stand up. My best friend in college wanted to start an improv comedy group. He needed people and essentially forced me to join. And I was terrible, but I did love the work. And once I got to PNG, I started to realize I was not only using the computer science skills, but more and more as a project manager and as a leader and as a team resource, I was using the improv and stand-up stuff and more than, than the technical stuff. And so I started to explore that intersection of humor in the workplace, improv and business, happiness and productivity. And, and Nick, this is going to surprise you, but uh, when I made my work more fun, I enjoyed it more and I was more willing to do it. And other people around me were as well. And, and that's kind of that, that was the birth of the humor engineer. And, and since then, I've left PNG and I speak about it, write about it, et cetera. But that was the initial starting point was, oh, I'm an engineer and this humor thing is working for me as an engineer. That's incredible. I mean, I, I, I think about being an IT project manager for stuff that's that big and complicated and technical. Uh, yeah, kudos to you for figuring out a way to not only make it fun, but actually to engage the people you're talking to about it so they don't feel like they're watching paint dry. Yeah, I was just going to say to that point, I mean, one of the moments that crystallized the closest I had to a like flipping over the table type moment, and it wasn't that, but it was like to that point of like watching paint dry. I remember being in this meeting at PNG earlier in my career that was incredibly boring. Like one of those ones where you're like watching paint try or you're like daydreaming about all the other things you wish you could do instead of being in that meeting. You're like, I wish I was, I wish I was folding laundry right now. Or, you know, like maybe, maybe I need to schedule a root canal so I feel something again, right? <laughs> like one of those boring <laughs> meetings. And the problem with that particular meeting was that I was the one leading the meeting. And I don't know, go ahead and share in the comments if you've ever related to that, if you've ever led a boring meeting. Because I had this realization where I was like, oh no, if, if I'm bored while talking, the audience has to be bored while listening. And so that's when I really started to say, can I bring some of this improv? Can I bring some of this stand-up stuff in? 
to make it even more fun for myself, not necessarily even thinking about other people, but just for myself. How do I get myself through the day? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just imagining this time where I gave a meeting like that. And I know exactly what you're talking about. When you're project, you're viewing yourself through your viewers' mm -hmm. eyes and you just are bored to death. So no, that's, that's really what this is all about is making things engaging, making them fun. And I mean, it all ties back to content marketing too, because we're mm -hmm. creating experiences that really are something that, even if it's not just entertaining, it's something that's engaging that people want to share, they want to look at. So mm -hmm. no, it, it all ties in. Everybody loves this sort of stuff. There's a lot of people who don't think having fun at the office is productive and they think it's just <laughs> screwing around and wasting time. I mean, what do you tell those people? I, I know you are, but what am I? Right, yeah. Well, I mean, I've certainly encountered that. I've, I've told me people that uh, people have told me, you know, um, if work was supposed to be fun, it would be called play. <laughs> someone told me that and someone's like, work is supposed to feel like work. Like they're very upset about me, this idea, introducing this idea of, of humor or fun. But Nick, I'll ask you a question. And I want for the people listening to also answer this question in the comments, because it's a very important question. It's a very dumb question, but a very important question. And the very important, but dumb, but important question is, would you rather do something that is fun or not fun? Oh, my goodness. That all depends, Drew. I mean, I've taken some riveting algebra tests. Uh, I suppose it all depends on, on what your idea of fun is. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to say short answer. I'd rather do something that's fun. Right, exactly. A short answer is fun. You might say as long as it's not you know, too expensive or doesn't cost me uh, like too much time or it's not illegal, et cetera, you're going to say fun. 99.9% .9 of the people that we work with say fun. So it stands to reason then, if you were to say, make your content marketing just a little bit more fun, would people be more engaged in reading it? If you were to make your own work just a little bit more fun, would you be more likely to do it? If you were to make your company culture just a little bit more fun, would you see an increase in retention, a decrease in turnover, an increase in turn of work, positive workplace feelings, et cetera? And the research shows us the answer is yes. There's been a ton of research about the value of humor in the workplace appropriate humor in the workplace. And we can talk about that, certainly, but <laughs> appropriate humor in the workplace. And there's 30 plus benefits to using it. So when I talk to people who are a little bit skeptical about it, I kind of make the point that what gets fun gets done. And this is not about, hey, let's all hold hands, kumbaya and have fun. It's more of like, no, this is effective with humans. If all you work with is computers, okay, maybe you don't need to learn uh, how to use humor. But if you work with humans, you're going to need a little bit of that emotional intelligence, a little bit of effective communication skill, and a little bit of humor to go along. Absolutely. Now, you've presented to over 35,000 people from more than 250 different organizations in all 50 states, 20, 20 or so countries, six continents, and one planet. I think the question that everybody is dying to have answered is, why just one planet? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I am I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work with NASA. I'm trying to get on to the space station. I would love to, you know, I would probably take the first rocket ship up to Mars. Um, I would like, yeah, I want to be interplanetary uh, with this. Um, my voice, it might resonate. My voice might be able to actually permeate space. So there might be aliens out there that are like, you know, this guy's got a point when it comes to humor. Oh, I, I hear Amazon's putting up a station. So, I mean, <laughs> get up there. But there's there's got to be consulting opportunities up there. I, I'm just saying, there's got to be something. All right. So let's tie this all back around. Uh, how is humor the secret to success is really the question we're asking. 
the answer, um, I think, can be found in a lot of your work. I'm talking, of course, about the book you wrote, Humor That Works. Now, I've seen this thing, and I can confirm from the presence of paper with little words on it that it is, in fact, the book right there. Great stuff. For anyone who's less familiar with this than I am, can you tell us a little bit about Humor That Works? Right. So a book is like a blog post that you print it and then fold it in half so that you could uh, look at it offline. Uh, Offline is when you are not on your computer and you are in what they call IRL, which is in real life. Uh, So this is, it's a big deal. Um, Amazon's going to make some money, I think, with this one day. And when in addition to their Amazon web services. Yeah, so this is the book. Uh, It has been called the funniest business book I've ever read. Um, That is by Luann Tarvin, who does happen to be my mom. She is also an HR manager, but is my mom. Um, So that's what she said. But this is basically, you know, if the 501 Ways book is just a reference guide to how, how to use humor, then this book is kind of the what, why, and how of humor in the workplace. This is the research. This is, you know, making the case for humor. There is, you know, charts kind of in here say this is a percentage of why people do things. This is like the the value that we can gain from it. This is, you know, the the math of why humor helps in terms of uh this is a fun math problem. So 70% of the workforce is disengaged in their work, costing the US economy an estimated $500 billion in lost productivity every single year. If you look at the average number of American workers, that's 107 million there. So you divide 500 billion by 107 million. That means the average disengaged employee costs their uh, company $4,638 in lost productivity every single year. So that's the dollar amount of what you can do if you get people engaged using something like humor. So it's not just a like, let's have fun. It's the, uh, let's have an impact. Let's, uh, let's actually impact the bottom line as well. So that's in the book. And then also how it's this missing skill at work and how we can start to apply it to the other core skills of work to be more effective, to execute faster, think smarter, communicate better, connect closer, and ultimately lead further. Is it fair to say that you put the fun in funds? Uh, it is. It is fair I'm to so say that. Sorry, I would, that's terrible. I would take that. I would take that. What we used to say, so I, I did improv in New York City uh, with an organization called uh, Comedy Sports. And what they would say is that we can help you put the fun back in funeral, which is a little bit darker. I remember that actually was a joke from uh, Batman the Animated Series as well. Ooh, it was yeah. uh, the man, I think it was the man who killed Batman. And Harley Quinn looks at the Joker as they're putting Batman's casket with the cape and cowl in the acid and says, you really put the fun in funeral. I think it's because we put a kick me sign on the cowl. Yeah, okay. All right, that, but that I digress. We, we could eat up the rest of the time just talking about Batman. You remember Heart of Ice? That was incredible. Let's see here. So we talked earlier about boring presentation. So mm-hmm. in Humor That Works, do you give any pointers on giving presentations that won't leave your audience asking difficult questions? Questions like, is anybody going to notice if I nod off right now? <laughs> or would I survive a fall from this height if I jumped out of that window. <laughs> Very important physics question right there. Um, I, I, I didn't yeah. mean to introduce geometry without any kind right. of warning. <laughs> right, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate it. And I am someone who loved math. Growing up, I never th- thought of them as math problems. I thought of them as math opportunities. <laughs> like, this is, this is a chance to do math. Um, so to answer your question, absolutely. So the way that the book is structured, it starts first with kind of a desperate need for humor in the workplace. 
and talking about the statistic, right, that 83% of Americans uh, and employees in general are stressed out at work, 55% are unsatisfied with their jobs. Uh, a fun fact, uh, because 55% of, of people are unsatisfied with their jobs, more people statistically in the United States believe in ghosts over like what they do for a living. Right, that's crazy if you think about it. More people believe in ghosts and like what they do for a living. That means for the average person, they're like, ah, I want to kill my boss, but I can't because then they come back and haunt me. Right. That is like there's something not not right with how things are going. <laughs> so that is that's, that's a know, staggering the first statistic. Part. I'm sorry. Right, exactly. It's crazy. But that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is is talks about how humor applies to what we consider the five core skills of work. No matter who you are, what you do, your work is essentially five core things. You have to be able to execute a task. You know, you have to be able to fry the French fries or send an email or shave an alpaca. If you happen to be an alpaca farmer, uh, you have to be able to think critically and creatively. So that is, you know, solving problems as they come up, creating a strategic plan, figuring out kind of the perfect angle so that you don't show the chaos that is behind your virtual camera when you're joining. You have to communicate effectively. So that's articulating your ideas in a way that other people can understand and also understanding what someone said and what they actually meant. You have to be able to uh, connect a little bit closer. That's emotional intelligence, empathy, building psychological safety, especially in a virtual environment. And ultimately, you need to be able to lead, to influence people to some type of common goal. So if you think about something like leading a meeting, a big chunk of that skill is certainly connection, but it's more so communication. And in the book, we talk about a couple of strategies for using humor to improve uh, your communication. And that's where kind of the, the meeting things can, can help. And I think one of the most effective things that you can do is recognize that when there is laughter, there is listening. And when there is listening, that's when you can communicate the ideas that you need to. And so one of the things that we say when it comes to, to meetings is, to start with a little bit of humor, whether that is an, if you're in sales, it, maybe it's an origin story, or if you're creating the copy or the content for the very first part of the first pitch to an, either a customer or potentially a investor, then you want to start with the origin story, add a little bit of humor to it along the way. Or if you're going to explain something that's complicated or complex, use a metaphor. We were recently working with a, a gentleman from the Red Cross, and he was trying to explain geoengineering to high school students. And geoengineering at a high level is a series of strategies that we might use to combat climate change by changing the planet. And so one of those ideas is that we release a bunch of sulfur particles in the air. They act as tiny little umbrellas and they block some of the sun reaching Earth's um, kind of um, the, the atmospheric. And so when we were talking with this person who is explaining this idea, we're like, oh, if the sulfur particles are like tiny umbrellas, you should reference Mary Poppins. And admittedly, the uh, guy was a little bit skeptical. Uh, he said, first of all, I don't know if these high school students will know who Mary Poppins is. And second of all, I don't like Mary Poppins. And I was... <laughs> well, that second one's fair. Well, I mean, I don't know. I might jaw. I was like, who doesn't like Mary Poppins? What? <laughs> Maybe Nick is on that same board. But I was like, trust me, I think it's going to work. He was skeptical. And so what he, he decided to do, he was like, he's a scientist. So he's like, let's test it. So we decided to record the audience in his presentation. And we then ran it through MIT Mood Analytics. So MIT has a service where you can kind of video and it will tell you like the mood of the audience based on AI. And what we found is that there was a spike in both mood and positive feelings when he referenced Mary Poppins. And it wasn't a super elaborate 
uh, reference. It was just more kind of like, hey, this is kind of like Mary Poppins and her big umbrella uh, coming down on a big umbrella. And it turns out that a spoonful of sugar helps the incredibly complex solution of climate change go down, is what I'm trying to say. But that's just a simple example of adding a little bit of humor to make it a little bit more accessible so that people are like, huh, this is a little bit different. Because the bar for what is funny in a meeting is a lot lower than what is funny in a stand-up comedy club. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, along with making it funnier, I mean, it's making it more relatable too. Because, I mean, you said it yourself, who doesn't know who Mary Poppins is? Like, we could argue about, you know, the merits of Mary Poppins, whether or not mm -hmm. she's a good child care provider. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm certain that some egghead has done a thesis on this, and I just haven't found it yet. But everybody knows who Mary Poppins is. I mean, they just had a remake, and even if they hadn't, everyone would still know who Mary Poppins is. Yeah. And it, it makes it just even a little bit more interesting. You're like, oh, I thought I was, I'm hearing a geoengineering, but now at least I get to think about Mary Poppins or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Some type of reference is just saying that is interesting. And this is particularly valuable if what you are communicating is serious. Right. So we've done some some work with some pretty what people would say are conservative or maybe serious organizations. So the Red Cross, the United Nations, uh, various emergency first responders, the FBI, like a whole range of things. And sometimes the subject matter itself is 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 serious. But if you relate it, if you create an association, you could bring up something like Mary Poppins, make fun or add humor about Mary Poppins. You could say, wait, maybe is a spoonful of sugar. I don't know. Sugar's not quite. Uh, quite as good as we thought it was, or it's way worse than we thought it was, et cetera. Like, so maybe that isn't, like you said, maybe it's not good medicine anymore. Um, but it, at least we can make humor about that, and it keeps the thing that we're associating with still serious as a serious it needs to be. And it's right. all about just capturing that attention because you're no longer in a meeting, especially if it's virtual meetings, you're no longer just competing with being in that room. Now you're computing, uh, competing with me being able to alt or command tab, depending on if you're Mac or uh, uh, Windows, alt or command tab to a different thing. And I could be watching YouTube right now or Netflix, or I could be playing Minecraft or whatever. Like, so you've got to be interesting enough to draw people away from that. So that's just one way that humor can help in the communication process. Yeah, it makes you think, too. Mm -hmm. Because if your brain is glossing over when you're hearing something about geoengineering, suddenly a mention of or reference to Mary Poppins or something else that you're familiar with snaps you right back. Yeah, well, and, and one of the points that was made to us by the Red Cross is that if what you are communicating is important, then boredom has very serious consequences, right? Because in, in another group that we're working with, they're doing uh, disaster preparedness. They were talking about how do we communicate effectively to people when we're telling them what to do in case of a flood or in case of a drought. And if you're in a presentation about what to do in case of a flood and it's incredibly boring, that you're zoned out, you're on your phone, you're like looking at the paint dry, you're imagining folding laundry, whatever it happens to be. And then a flood happens a year later. Well, that has a serious consequence because you weren't paying attention. Boredom has very serious consequences if what you're communicating is important. But just because something is important doesn't mean that it's inherently interesting. And that's where humor helps. Us. Well said. From your own data, speaking of humor, um, going back to humor that works, it seems you've included 15 references to milkshakes. Name your top three. Top three milkshakes. That is a great question. It is, and I'll tell you the reason why I like milkshakes is because it's the most efficient form of dessert. It's amazing because it's the deliciousness of ice cream and all you have to do is suck, right? I don't think that there's an easier form of, like you can do almost anything else and have a milkshake, right? It is something that you can do. You can technically exercise while having a milkshake, which is very hard to do with other forms of dessert, I think. So top three. 
Uh, I would say um, uh, a chocolate cake milkshake from mm. Portillo's in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I will say the pretty much anything from Black Tap, um, which is a place in New York City. And a cookies and cream milkshake from Grater's Ice Cream in Cincinnati, Ohio. Those would be my top three. I knew a cookies and cream was going to work its way in there. I don't know why. Probably because it's everybody's favorite, at least in their top four, top five. Yeah. Definitely top three. Yeah. Oh, I, a 3B, I would say, is a, ne- uh, um, a Neapolitan shake from In-N-Out. When you mix the, the chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry all together, that would be, that would be 3B. Nice. All right. I hope everybody's taking notes because this is the heavy hitting stuff that's going to get you ahead. Trust me. We've talked a lot about humor and we've made a couple of jokes here and there. Maybe that's arguable in in my case. But tell us, what is humor to you? Humor to me, it's it's a great question to redefine, right? Because it is a very important thing, I think, to to understand and define. Because there's a very particular specific reason why I say humor in the workplace rather than comedy in the workplace. Because a lot of people, when they think of humor, they think of comedy, they think of laughter, they think of jokes, uh, they think of someone in particular who might be funny. And those are all components of humor. But humor is also more broad than that. And so the dictionary definition of humor is a comic, absurd, or incongruous quality causing amusement. So it could be something comedic, something funny, could be something just a little bit silly, or it could be something just a little bit different, something a little bit unique. Right. So, for example, I very intentionally like here have a painting from my brother of Calvin and Hobbes. And that when I'm like people are paying attention, like when they look and I do a virtual meeting, there's sometimes it's like, wait, is that Calvin and Hobbes? And now I get to talk about my love for Calvin and Hobbes. That's not necessarily funny, but it's something, you know, a little bit more interesting than just a completely bland background. So feel attacked. No, I mean, I love the orange behind you. (laughs) At least there's orange. Right. Some people join from what could be a prison cell. I don't know. Like that looks like that looks a little bit better with orange. So I'll, I'll show you no what's behind people, that later. Yeah, exactly. No offense to people who are joining from a prison cell. Good on you for, for working for yourself, uh, for, for educating. Um, Good on the but, woman. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. But to me, when it comes to defining humor in the workplace, I would say think less about making things funny, more about making things fun. That is kind of a key distinction. Perfectly said. Let's get, we're, we're going to abandon fun for just a minute. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to the serious subject of mental health. So beyond mitigating boredom and engaging your audience, your colleagues, your clients, how does humor improve one's mental health? It's a really, really important question. And the way that I think about it is that there's an equation that sometimes people relate to when it comes to comedy. They say comedy equals tragedy plus time. And what we typically mean by that is that after something tragic has occurred, if enough time has elapsed, you can start to find the humor. in. For example, like no one's really going to cancel you or get upset if you make a joke about the Titanic, right? I mean, James Cameron took that entire tragedy happening and made it about a love story between two people about someone saying there's not enough room on the raft when there was clearly enough room left on that piece of wood, right? It's kind of a three hour Uh, joke. Exactly. It It was a three hour long setup. (laughs) Uh, for this floating in the wood and all that, right? So there's so many things that you can make fun of with that that movie and that that thing. But it, it's saying, okay, there's enough time that has elapsed. Same thing of like you make a joke about uh, Abraham Lincoln, et cetera, right? But certain things feel a little bit too soon. It's the same thing in a personal life as well. Like I can make fun of the fact that in high school, I had what I considered to be the mullet of facial accessories because I had uh, Harry Potter style glasses and a stud earring. 
And that's like the Harry Potter facial, uh, the, the mullet of facial accessories, because it's like all business right here. And then like a party just right here. And this one ear. You laugh, but that sounds amazing. I yeah. would probably do that, but I've got a Sasquatch shirt. That so. You would rock that stuff. <laughs> See, to me, like in college, that was incredibly embarrassing to admit, but enough time has elapsed now where I can kind of find that, that many of us can, right? You look back at your high school pictures and for a lot of us, we're like, whoo, man, I'm, my parents let me walk out of the house like that. Uh, my friends did not say anything about it, right? Enough time has elapsed. We find the comedy in it. What's interesting to me is that I think there's a corollary to that equation where if something tragic happens to you, and you can find the comedy in it, it will make it feel like more time has elapsed or it will help you to give yourself a sense of control because you can't control something happening to you, but you can sometimes control your reaction to it. And so by finding the humor in it, you're saying in the face of adversity, I'm still able to laugh. I'm still able to find the humor in it. And that's something that I think you see in a lot of times with emergency first responders or nurses or doctors, people who work in very high stress situations. They have what's sometimes dark humor to an outside perspective, but it becomes cathartic humor. It becomes humor that helps them to manage the stress. Same thing with day-to-day -day work. Same thing with stress management. Same thing with even the pandemic. Now, obviously, the pandemic has been incredibly challenging for a lot of people. It's been absolutely devastating for other people. But if we can still find the humor in it, not to poke fun at people who are victims of COVID or otherwise, but to try to find humor in, say, virtual meetings, that can help us to laugh and find the absurdities in it, right? So I think, I think one of the things that's kind of drawn me from uh, virtual meetings is I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic when people were still very new to virtual meetings, so many of them would join down here. Like they would join a virtual meeting. They'd have so much headroom. They would do what I call the turtle, which is where they're like just barely poking out for whatever reason. Or they, they would do the opposite. Uh, speaking of Batman, this is what I call the Batman, where it's just a lower part <laughs> of their face so we can see. Or inevitably, at some point, somehow, someone's going to get stuck on mute while they're talking. <laughs> Drew, Drew, Drew. Yeah. Oh, there he is. I know. I, I freak some people out. Some people, are multi some people are playing Minecraft right now, and they're like, wait a second, something happened to my audio. Oh, no? Okay. All right, right? It's just a, little, just a little virtual humor for you, right? But just finding the humor in those types of situations helps us to have a little bit more of perspective around it. And so I think that's one strategy for how we can use humor when it comes to mental health. There's a few other things that we talk about when it comes to stress management, being very intentional about relieving the stress when it occurs or finding ways to reframe stressful situations. But just kind of the idea of finding the humor in something helps it to not have so much kind of power or weight over uh, you in that situation. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important distinction too. It's the difference between making fun and making fun, mm. right? Ooh, making I like that. fun and making things fun mm -hmm. i like it yeah. important distinction no i love it uh let me see here you talk a lot that's it that's it i just talk a lot <laughs> are you reading ahead that's exactly what i wrote no I'm, I'm just kidding you talk a lot about humor's influence on success so can mm -hmm. you tell us about the connection between the two and i should mention that my google document actually wants me to write homer's influence on success so if you could expand on that as well I think people would be really interested to hear. So that's really interesting. Well, we'll start with the Homer's influence on success. There is a fantastic, it's now an image, but it was from an episode of The Simpsons. And talking about that idea of perspective, in one frame, it is a sign over Sims, uh, Homer Simpson's workplace that says, don't forget you're here forever. 
And what he has done is he's put up pictures of, I believe, Maggie, maybe all the kids, but I think specifically Maggie. And he put up the pictures so that the don't forget you're here forever becomes do it for her. And that, I think, is is part of Homer's kind of influence of success is recognizing what you are doing, like why you are doing it. Why are you working so hard? Right. Right. The work you do is only worth it if it is actually worth it and finding that connection to a bigger purpose, to a bigger goal outside of very respective of humor. But Homer's perspective, I think, is a huge aspect into, into success and defining what success looks like. Because the other thing is many people think that success precedes happiness. They think if I am successful, then I will be happy. You know, if I just get good grades in school, then I'll be happy. If I just get a good education at a university, then I'll be happy. If I just get a job after graduating, then I'll be happy. If I just get a promotion, then I'll be happy. If I'm just able to get this apartment or whatever, then I'll be happy. The problem is that the goalpost always moves. In fact, Van Dad, who works with uh, Humor That Works, what he says is that the reality is that every finish line is a starting line to another race. And so if you're only happy when you achieve certain success, it's going to be very temporary because as soon as you have achieved that success, there's going to be something else that you want to go for. There's going to be like, hey, I finally finished that blog post that I needed. I should be happy now. And then you're like, oh, great. Now I have these eight other ones that I'm supposed to do. And so we actually flip that. When you can find happiness in what you do, that's when success will follow. And it's not that you have to uh, do what you love for work. It's not like you're like, okay, what do I love? I love uh, comic books. So I I can only work in comic books. Um, Well, some people are going to be able to do that. Some people might start to do that and actually hate it because it turns their hobby into a job. Um, but not everyone's able to do that. Instead of trying to do what you love, find ways to love what you do. If you can find things that you're already doing and find ways to make them a little bit more fun, where the humor comes into play or reframe them a little bit so that you kind of understand the the purpose that they're serving, the the Homer method, I guess, in that uh, scenario, you're going to start to increase your happiness. By increasing your happiness, you're going to be willing to do that work a little bit more. You're going to be more engaged in it, and that's going to ultimately lead to success. And I think the big thing, part of the the goal of this book is that through school, we often learn the skills we need to get a job. And then when we start on that job, we start to get on the job training where you kind of learn by doing. We start to learn the skills we need to do a job. But very rarely are we taught or even told to think about the skills we need to enjoy a job. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do at Human That Works is to help people to enjoy what they do so that they get better results and have a little bit more fun. I couldn't agree more. When I... I think my first job outside of my parents' snack bar was actually working a Blockbuster video. I had a choice between working at the grocery store across the shopping center or working a Blockbuster. Blockbuster paid less, but I feel like I got so much more out of that gig. And the guy I worked with was saying, you know, I'm only doing this because I can't get into school to become a NASCAR driver. I don't know what to tell you. Not everybody gets NASCAR sponsorships as well as things. You can enjoy NASCAR and still enjoy what you're doing. Don't Mm -hmm. put your life on hold because you aren't Dale Earnhardt Jr. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, let's see here. One of the most desirable side effects of all of this is increased productivity. Mm -hmm. So can you expand on how humorous leaders can lead more productive teams? And, you know, before we get to that, I should add, Google Docs was onto something because I feel like we got a really interesting answer out of Homer's influence on success and reminded everyone of a poignant, important Simpsons reference that I had actually forgotten about until you brought it up. So I'm glad I asked. Exactly. I would say, yeah, thank you to, um, to Google Docs uh, for that. 
Uh, and I would say it's a, you know, that the ability for me to kind of answer your question on Homer, I would not have been able to do prior to ever doing improv, right? Because especially when I was kind of still in project management days and the computer science engineer, I'd be like, wait, no, that's not about humor. I, I talk about humor. I don't talk about Homer. I don't, what is it? No, this, I don't compute Homer who, or is it Homer Simpson? Are we talking about Homer in the Odyssey or whatever? Like, you know, I would have been too kind of thrown off by it, but having done enough improv and learning the mindset of yes, and, and everything, it's like, okay, no, like that is a wonderful gift, right? That we have. And now let's play with it and see if it turns into to something else. So I think it is a, it's a great example and a great demonstration of what you can learn from humor and improvisation. Um, wonderful, wonderful pivot. I was going to say Homer from the Odyssey. I was going to say Homer Simpson. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm just going to let, I'm just going to let Drew pick. Exactly. I love that. I love that you're able to do that. Cause I don't know if I, there's probably, I mean, there's plenty of life lessons from the Odyssey. So I'm sure there's more there. In fact, actually from the Odyssey, as we're talking about it, one of the first written puns comes from the Odyssey. So I'm I did a huge not know that. Pun lover. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge pun lover. And I wrote an article way back in the day. I don't know that I ever published it anywhere. I need to go back and think about it. But it was in defense of puns. And yeah, one of the first puns was um, uh, the giant that um, uh, he uh, blinded in the book, The Odyssey. Uh, he called, he, when he asked what his name was, he said, nobody. And so the giant then is, is furious, is blind, he can't see who has harmed him. And he's like, um, and people are like, who did this to me? And he's like, nobody did this to me. Nobody did this to me. Uh, one of the first examples of wordplay uh, in the written word comes from the, the Odyssey. Also, fun fact, it, I did not realize until researching, the Beatles is a pun. Yes, someone just scooped me on this, I think like a month ago, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I didn't even notice. I looked at the spelling, oh, that's weird. Never even occurred to me, like the Beatles. Yep, exactly. The beat of <laughs> my wife, my wife just realized we have a frigid air refrigerator. Uh, she just realized she, we were sitting down at dinner at dinner like three weeks ago. And she was like, frigid, wait, frigid air because of frigid air as in cold air. The name of the company is frigid air because of frigid air. It was like blowing my mind, right? There is wordplay all over the place that people don't see. And when I say it on stage, I get groaned at. Um, right. So. <laughs> Um, okay, so those are our two connections to Homer. We did one for each. I feel pretty good about that now. Underappreciated um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what was your question? Uh, yeah, I'm so I, I completely derailed us. I pulled us I pulled us off on the monorail track. That's another Simpsons mm -hmm. reference that we can yep. play with. Yeah. Um, but I was talking about one of the most desirable side effects mm -hmm. is increased productivity. So yep. can you expand on how humorous leaders are leading more productive teams? Certainly. So I think from an individual perspective, I mean, still the same, same thing applies. If you can make your work a little bit more fun, you're going to be a little bit more effective in doing it because you're uh, enjoying a little bit more. So one of the things that you can do is gamification. And so this is something that you can do as an individual or as a team. And so gamification is essentially applying game theory to uh, things that are not game. So, for example, this is kind of the, the common thing. I, can't, I think it was Marcus Buckingham, um, maybe, who talked about the idea of a sales team that would ring a bell every time a sales was kind of made. And it's just like, hey, here's a small audible noise or recognition to say sales. And that's kind of like uh, smart and enjoyable. Uh, there's a great to-do app, like a taskless app. I think it's called Epic. Um, it was called something else at, at some point. But it basically turns your taskless into an RPG where every task that you do, you get experience points for, and you can kind of grow levels. Do you know what I'm talking about? Epic Win. Yeah, Epic Win. One of the Win, lead designers of Little Big Planet worked on that app. Oh, I love it, right? So that's an example of gamification. Um, Peloton is a great example of gamification of like, let's throw all these people that want to exercise, and now you're going to compete against them as well, so you're going to work a little bit harder 
as a result of it. Like all of these small things just to increase productivity a little bit more, I think is, is one thing uh, that works. And then also they've just done research that finds that when people communicate a little bit more with each other, have more conversations with each other, they're more likely to be able to say solve problems a little bit later to be able to work together more effectively as teams. And so part of as a leader, what you can do is use humor to bring people closer together to create more of a team feel. And that's going to lead to long-term productivity because it's also going to increase not only productivity, but also engagement and retention. And nothing slows down productivity more like having to replace someone uh, and to fill in and like onboard someone, et cetera. And so I think those are some kind of quick tips in terms of how humor applies. And then any specific scenario, I think the easiest thing to say is, how could I make this 1% more fun? 5% more fun, 10% more fun, where it's not going to make you love the task that you're doing, but can you make it a little bit more enjoyable? If you have a task that you dread doing that's a little bit monotonous, can you listen to music that you love? Like I love the Hamilton soundtrack. And so if I'm doing emails or doing something where it's not super like creative, but I need to do it, then I'll listen to the Hamilton soundtrack because there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Well, we're running a little bit short on time. So I just have one more question. Sure. I'm, I'm going to skip past a couple of other jokes, like putting a clown at reception and dentist office and what have you. But if you could tell anyone in this audience who's afraid of what having a sense of humor could do to their professional reputation, you could tell them one thing, what would it be? And why isn't it the litany against fear from Frank Herbert's Dune? <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, it's a great point. Um, I, it's not the litany against fear because I couldn't say it any better. And the, the question that I would pose back is if you had zero expectations about how you were supposed to show up to work, if you had zero insight as to from pop culture, from seeing it in other places, et cetera, how would you choose to show up? Who would you choose to show up to be? If you were to go back to your five-year-old self, who would they want to be in the workplace? And I'm not saying like go running around screaming and, you know, um, eat, uh, you know, Play-Doh and all that kind of stuff. But rather there's, there's this call for authenticity. There's this call for being vulnerable in the workplace and creating psychological safety and bringing your full self to work. It is impossible to bring your full self to work if humor is not part of the equation because to humor is to human, right? It is part of who we are as people. It's something, it's one of the big things that separates us from computers is the emotions and humor kind of attached to it. And so what I would say is that the average person is going to work 90,000 hours in their lifetime, right? 90,000 hours, that's longer than everything on Netflix. My belief is that you might as well enjoy it. And obviously, there's a big caveat to what we've been talking about today when it comes to using humor, and that is using appropriate humor. Because humor is not an excuse to then be sexist or racist or prejudiced in the workplace. And it's not like, oh, but I saw so-and-so say that in a stand-up comedy special. It's like, well, you're not doing a stand-up comedy special. Your goal is not to be seen as the funny person. It is to be effective. And so this is using positive, inclusive humor. It's starting small. It's starting with what is your strength. But ultimately, I mean, it's your work. It's your life that you spend a third of your awake hours at work doing that thing. I would say you might as well find ways to enjoy it because not only are you going to actually look forward to going into work a little bit more, you're actually going to get better results. And they've seen all across the board in terms of the benefits of increasing productivity, reducing stress, increasing the number of opportunities that people are giving, ultimately leading into an increase in paycheck etc. Right. So there's a, a tremendous number of both kind of tactical benefits to use it and life benefits to incorporating humor a little bit more. Like you said, if you're going to spend 90,000 hours 
doing anything. Do you want it to feel like doing your taxes the day after right. they're due? Or do you want it to, you want to actually have it be something that you enjoy? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, tremendous, tremendous points, Drew. We're going to go ahead and we're going to take a couple of questions. I've asked enough questions. Like the only other question mm-hmm. I had was, are you by chance a Star Trek fan? I am. Yes. I, we, we can I, I would, I will, I will admittedly say I'm, I'm a little bit more, I, this may be blasphemous to some people. My rank is uh, actually Doctor Who uh star wars star trek now i know Ooh. that they're, they're conflating a little bit of things but that's doctor who is is the top and it's not just because people tell me i look a little bit like the mix of david Tennant, doctor who and matt smith doctor who that's not the only reason why i like doctor who, i could but see it's an added bonus benefit <laughs> okay well let me let me let's ask, let's get some uh questions from the audience mm-hmm. maybe they have more questions about um dune's influence on star yep. wars or doctor who or right. more mm-hmm. more fun stuff um, Sarah W asks, what made you write humor that works? Do you have, did you have an aha moment that? Uh, yeah. So, um, humor that works is the hardest book that I've written. So I've written three, 501 ways to use humor in the workplace. That is meant to be a reference guide to using humor. Uh, the United States of laughter. That is, I, I was a, a nomad for 18 months and, and traveled around and went to, uh, Spoker performed in all 50 states in a year. And so that book is just kind of more of like a travel, comedic travel memoir about what I learned about myself uh, along the way. And then this, this in some ways, it took me six months to write, but in many ways, it took me 12 years to write. Because it was like, how do I take what I have learned about all of these components when it comes to using humor? How can I put that into a book? What's the most accessible way for people to, to gain it? Especially if they're like, oh, I, but what if I'm not funny? Because the second half of this book is 10 humor strategies anyone can learn or anyone can implement in their role. And so the idea of this was I speak to a lot of organizations. I work with a lot of different groups. But I know there's a good number of people that are never going to see me speak live either because they don't want me because they hate this voice or because they, I'm not brought into their organization or they haven't seen my videos or whatever it happens to be. The book was meant to be a guide for those people to say, okay, this is... Now you can go and you can kind of look at it. You can hi- if you're someone like I read on Kindle because then I can highlight stuff, uh, et cetera. If it's someone that learns through that, this book is meant to be a good starting point for them. Or I could hook you up with the guy who hooked me up with my voice modulator so that you can have that mm-hmm. buttery smooth, you know. That's what uh, I need. I, I mean, T-Pain uses autotune for his songs. I was like, can I use autotune for uh, Zoom meetings? Is that weird? We're going to ask the next question. <laughs> I don't know how to autotune. Luis asks, where to start? I mean, I'm in a place right now that I don't know how to kick it off to add humor to my work. Really, really a valuable question, Luis. I think the, the two things that I'd say is, one, we believe that humor that works, that anyone can learn to be funny-er. At least funny-er, right? You can go from whatever baseline you are now into a little bit funny-er. You may not ever become uh, you know, a Ali Wong level of funny or a George Carlin level of funny. You may never have a Netflix comedy special, but you can learn this skill. And if humor is a skill, then it means the question isn't, are you funny? The question is, what kind of funny are you? Or what kind of funny do you want to be? And this is kind of the, the stuff that we're building on now. It's not in the book, uh, this book. It's going to be a new book in the future, um, probably. But what we're exploring now is what we've discovered is that there's seven primary humor personas that people tend to adopt. And um, a lot of people think of the entertainer as the comedian, right? The entertainer is a person that we see on stage that makes people laugh. That's only one of the seven personas. There's also someone who is like a curator. 
a curator is someone who sees funny things, whether it's on Reddit or Instagram accounts or whatever, and then shares it with other people. So if you've ever kind of seen a meme and you're like, oh my God, my friend Matt would love this. I'm going to send it to Matt. That is kind of that act of curation. And so you can that can be really effective when it comes to content marketing. I mean, if you look at The Hustle, the newsletter, The Hustle, they do a tremendous amount of curation. In addition to writing news articles, every Friday they do shower thoughts from Reddit, right? So they're curating humor from other people. Um, so where I would start is start to think about your natural style. Who are you kind of with your friends and family? And then say, okay, what is the work appropriate version of that? How can I start to bring that into my work? And right, the, the work appropriate is really key. But how can I translate that skill, right? Maybe I'm making jokes, so maybe I need to make now clean jokes. Maybe I'm sharing kind of like um, slightly dark memes. Okay, so now they need to be, you know, work appropriate memes, et cetera. So you can start by identifying your humor persona. That's actually the assessment that we're talking about. So we can talk about that link in just a moment. But start first with understanding your own strength. And then second, start with making your own work more fun. Some people are intimidated or some people are like, ah, but my workplace is too serious. My manager would never let me use humor. I would be scolded if I tried to tell a joke. It's like, okay, well, your manager can't control how you think. They can't prevent you. One of the things that I like to do is if I get bored while reading emails, I'll start to read each of the emails in an accent in my head, right? It's like, okay, what if this, what if this was, a lot of times I use uh, uh, different characters. So if the Incredible Hulk sent this email to me, what would it sound like? Or if it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Uh, Christopher Walken, et cetera. So I just read these emails in different accents in my head. No manager can prevent me from doing that. No one can come over and be like, you're reading emails in an accent in your head. Stop it, right? It's a mental thing. No manager can stop you from listening to a comedy special on your way home from work so that you laugh, relieve a little bit of stress and show up more present for your family when you get there, right? There's certain things that you can start to implement just for yourself. And then over time, you can slowly start to introduce it into your work, maybe in a meeting or maybe one-on-one, -on -one, see how it kind of you get the response and then you start, slowly build from there. But I think start first with yourself and start first by better understanding your own kind of natural humor persona. You see, now I'm going to start reading all of my emails in different character voices. To whom it may concern, the yogurt in the refrigerator in the break room does not have your name on it. <laughs> Please, for the love of God, leave my yogurt alone. I love it. Uh, your accents right. are way better than mine. Mine ends up being um, an amalgamation of like, is that really an accent or just like it's, it's offensive? I'll try to do, I'll, I'll try to be like Southern, uh, like, dear Andrew, thank you so much for the <laughs> webinar today. And it's like, uh, Maybe that's not so great. <laughs> oh, you can do crusty to crowd. Oy, I can't, no, that, that's enough of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Luis asks again, will companies hire me if I present humor as a value? Will it ever count somehow? And I, I think that the short answer is yes, but tell us why. I think so. I mean, here's the thing is people forget that when they're interviewing, they're not only interview, getting interviewed for the company, they are interviewing the company themselves. And I was working with someone, this was a few years ago, who was in job search, and they had a really strong sense of humor. They had improv in the background, et cetera. And I was like, you should put sense of humor in your special skills. You already have that list there. Why not for fun add sense of humor? And they were like, well, what if someone doesn't hire me because I have sense of humor on my resume? I'm like, that is fantastic. Because right? I would not want to work for an organization that would reject me simply because I had the word sense of humor on my resume, right? Because that's probably not an organization that you want to work for, right? So you got to remember that the interview goes both ways. In fact, I just read something on, on LinkedIn. Someone had, had shared something today of like, wait, no, interviews go both ways. If, if someone asks for three references for me, can I ask, can you reference three employees who are happy that I can speak to? 
right? Like, why can't I do the same thing? I've talked to three employees and get references on this as an organization. I mean, that's what you see. That's what Indeed does. That's what uh, Fishbowl, the like social media app, a lot of that is like, hey, what is it like working at Deloitte? And people are then super honest about it, right? So I, I remember that it goes both ways and present, again, a positive a constructive version of your humor. And if people are like, ah, we don't want that here, then it's probably not an organization that you would have had fun fun with anyway. Same goes for dating, uh, by the way. (laughs) Using humor. If if your humor's sense of humor is don't match, it's probably not going to work out long-term. Yeah, bullet dodged. That's, uh, again, 90,000 hours. You don't want to spend it being miserable. Right. Probably more important than dating, almost. Yep. Uh, Yep. All right. Is there anything else, uh, Drew, that you want to share? with yeah. your followers and our audience before we let you go. The last thing that I would say, and, and uh, this I share at the end of a lot of my programs. Well, first of all, certainly, uh, thank you for having me. And if people are interested more about kind of our one-on-one work, our, our coaching work, or our group kind of organizations and things like that, certainly reach out to me. I'm uh, at Drew Tarvin on all social media. So D-R-E-W-T-A-R, B as in Victor, I-N. Or you can reach us also, Humor That Works is all of our social media handles, but we're more than happy to chat about how we can bring this into your organization or what our one-on-one coaching looks like. But the last thing that I would say is I'm in project manager, so I know I got to end on next steps. My encouragement for your next step is one, do the assessment. It's a great starting point. Uh, But two, if you're like, I don't want to click on a link that you're sending me or my internet's not working. It's like, well, how are you listening to this? Um, But two, what I would say is we encourage people to try to drive one smile per hour. Try to think about each hour of the day to think about one thing that you can do that brings a smile to your face or the face of someone else. So maybe that's smiling just a little bit more. Maybe it's uh, watching or listening to a comedy special on your way home from work. Maybe it's reading an email and an accent in your head. Maybe it's going uh, uh, out and looking for the Homer meme that we talked about a little bit earlier. Whatever it is, do one thing each hour of the day that brings a smile to your face or the face of someone else, and you'll start to develop a humor habit you'll start to see how easy it is to start to incorporate humor into the work that you do and you'll start to have a bigger impact because you ultimately decide every single day how you're going to do your work. So why not choose to be more productive, less stressed and happier? Why not choose to get better results and have more fun? Why not choose humor that works? There are way worse habits that you can pick up. Trust me, I know my grandmother knows she sounds like this. Uh, Drew, you're a really funny guy. (laughs) Real pleasure to be around. It was a delight talking with you today. Thank you so much for finding the time to share with us today, for shedding some light on these issues, for giving us insight into what it means to use humor while at work. To everybody on the line, have a look at DrewTarvin.com and subscribe to his channel on YouTube. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to receive our latest episodes. We'll see you next week.